Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator. Ms. Carla Hall is a journalist on the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times. She was previously a staff writer for the LA Times California section. She writes on many topics, including pop culture, reproductive rights, human rights, and homelessness. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Carla Hall. Thank you for coming. Um, and so, our panelists. Chris Coe is the Managing Director of Homelessness and Strategic Initiatives for the United Way of Greater Los Angeles, where he directs Home for Good, California's broadest community-based effort to end homelessness. Janie Roundtree is the Founding Executive Director of the California Policy Lab at UCLA. She is also a member of the National Alliance to End Homelessness Research Council and is the Deputy Director of the Homelessness Policy Research Institute. Christine Margiata is Executive Director of Social Venture Partners Los Angeles and former Vice President of Community Impact at United Way of Greater Los Angeles, where she designed and directed the Home for Good initiative. She has nearly 20 years of experience working on social justice issues, including homelessness, education, racial justice, and LGBTQ rights. Randall Kuhn is a demographer and sociologist who studies global health, immigrant health, and homelessness. He was director of the Global Health Affairs Program at the University of Denver and co-founded the UCLA Transdisciplinary Homelessness Research Initiative. Thank you for being here. So... Let's just take seriously or literally that question or the title of the event here, how can everyday Angelinos help homeless people? I mean, Christine, what are some things that Angelinos can do to help homeless people? Should we give them water and food when we see them? Money? Something else? Should we just acknowledge them by saying hello or smiling? I've had homeless people tell me they feel like they're invisible. I think that last point is such a good one, Carla. I think, you know, the, the first thing that I think about is acknowledging someone's humanity. So uh, looking people in the eye, acknowledging that you see them, I think that's one of the most important things we can do, just human to human, letting anyone in the world let, uh, let them know that we see them, uh, and particular, particularly for people who experience uh, so much, uh, so much of that sense of invisibility uh, out on the streets. I also think about, you know, when, when encountering someone who's, who's out on the streets, this question of, do I give money, do I give food? Um, I, I always encourage folks when they ask that question to think about the conditions that they often impulsively want to put on, on what they're giving. So often someone will say, well, I want to give mm -hmm. money, but I want them to spend it on food, yeah. or you know, I want them to do this yeah. or that with it. Um, so I think if you think about giving, how do we do so without attachment? And how do we trust one another to meet our own needs, whatever, whatever that need may be? You know, I think that's such a good point because I, I've often thought when I've given <clears throat> money to homeless people, I've heard people say, no, no, don't give money to homeless people. They'll spend it on whatever. And I say, what do you want them to do? Like, put it on a down payment on a condo? I mean, like, whatever they need to do to get through the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're all in the business of trying to look for ways to help homeless people or get um, homeless people housed and get them services, um, understand the situation better. I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, Janie, what do you do? Um, it's a great it's a great question. So professionally, um, at UCLA, we're looking across the entire system of services. But I am also a resident of Los Angeles. I live in in the Hollywood neighborhood. I have a small child. I have to walk her to school or walk her around the neighborhood. And I also deal with that question: Am I comfortable walking with my child past this encampment? What do I do? Who do I call? How do I engage? Um, and for me, um, completely separate from my professional work, I made a point to establish a relationship with my service provider in my community. So I think you all know that there is a service provider who is responsible for connecting to families or adults or youth in your neighborhood, mm -hmm. understanding who that, what that organization is, where it is, how they operate, how they serve people. Go in and, and ask for a tour, um, figure out okay. what they need. 
uh, what the volunteer needs are. And I, I think with my own family, when I think about walking my daughter, um, I, I believe that it's totally safe to do that. But you have to engage with your children on what is happening and why people might be homeless. Um, and we're going to presumably talk about that um, throughout the evening. Yeah. So I'll, I'll pass it back to you. Well, um, it, why are some people afraid to walk their small children? And when I say small, well, elementary school children uh, past homeless encampments or homeless people in general. Is it, is it bad to walk a child past a homeless encampment? I don't think it is. I, if I put myself in those shoes, there's often several fears that people have. I think there's a fear that there is someone with serious mental illness mm -hmm. who is not con in control of themselves and not making rational decisions who might lash out or be violent towards you or your family. Mm -hmm. I think there is a fear of um, an infection or disease, um, which is not that common, although it is in certain areas of certain encampments. And I think there's a fear of having the conversation. So with maybe, your child. Yeah, maybe yeah. you're tired and you've had a long day and you don't really want to talk about poverty with your whatever age child. And so right. you try to avoid it by not walking past or not engaging. Um, and I think that's a mistake as a parent. And I think something important to consider is to think about what the person experiencing homelessness is also experiencing in that moment. Because when I look at an encampment, to me that's an expression of the fear that someone experiencing homelessness has of us. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about my time growing up in Richmond, Virginia, capital of the Confederacy, and being a minority there, I felt very visible and invisible at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like it can, it yeah. can be possible to feel both ways. And when I see someone experiencing homelessness and what they've built around them, to me that's an expression of their desire for protection and safety as well. I think we see it just as hoarding or you know, unhygienic things. But to me, when I see that, it, it resonates with me because I remember what it feels like to both want to be seen but also want to not be seen in a certain way. And so I think so, also for us to think about what, it, what they might be experiencing as well. I mean, kind of a sense of um, just leave me be. Like, I'm going to let you be and leave me be. I mean, yeah. on the part of the homeless person. Yeah, and just wanting protection and privacy from their just normal existence. And them wanting to shield us from certain things that they feel like, oh, I wouldn't want to show that to someone else. So I think understanding that the dynamic is awkward for both of us mm -hmm. is also mm -hmm. something important to remember. Randall? Um, to me, it's just unusual. And that's... Uh, a simple fact that everyone has to reckon with, and we reckon with it all in our own ways. So I've spent much of my career, I've done a lot of work on homelessness, and then I've been focused on global health issues, particularly working in Bangladesh for the last 15 years. And right in Bangladesh, there are very large informal slum settlements that people set up for exactly the reason Chris said, that people can find safety, they can work together, they can build neighborhoods together, they can, they can protect themselves from disease by building sanitation systems. Whatever it might be that they can do, they're more likely to be able to do that together, right? And in many cases, these are people who were left out or sent out of their communities, and they can form a new community with people in, in this new area in a large city like Dhaka. But this is unfamiliar to us, right? We have a notion that everyone should have a home, that everyone has a home. And so when people are forced to live on the streets, they will naturally congregate. And that is unusual. People living on the streets is unusual to us, and people living on the streets in clusters is unusual to many people. And so it is natural for everyone to have a reaction. And as Janie said, not having a reaction, ignoring it, pushing it under the surface, not addressing it with our, our, our children is ultimately a mistake, but it's a very natural one. Well, and let's talk about the fact that um, there has been such a growing frustration on the part of people who live in houses with people who are homeless. Uh, there's a sense in this city that, um, in particular, where we're spending, or we have spent, essentially, $1.2 billion on housing, but 
the housing's still in, in construction or in development, so none of it's been opened. And we're building bridge shelters, but none of those, well, that's not true. Um, a number, quite a number of them are open, but there's still quite a number to be opened. Uh, there's a sense, I think, that people feel like, look at, and homelessness has only gotten bigger. I mean, it went up 12% in the county from 2018 to 2019, and mm -hmm. it went up 16% in the city. So there's this frustration that people are on the streets, and I think you hear people in houses talk about, I don't like the way they look, I don't like the trash, I don't like the smells that are coming from them. What, uh, how do we engage those people, and what do we say to those people who are frustrated? Um, Randall, you start again. <laughs> We're all frustrated. It's, it's really frustrating. And again, I do think it's, uh, to me, unusual it is still really, it's not a super strong word, but it just kind of is what it is, that it's surprising. And we're all, uh, you know, LA, I guess we have a certain culture around space and we like our own space. We have mostly live without, you know, our walls attached to other people's walls and so on. And so we're not, we're used to having space and, and not having neighbors bothering us that often. But the reality is we all have neighbors who we don't like for a variety of reasons. And we have neighbors that don't like us for a variety of reasons. And so some of it, is just simply that, right? So, so some of it is people want things to be a certain way and they're not. You know, the other part of that though, I think, is that people were told that, right, people were sort of had a version of how Measure H and Measure HHH and the Homeless Initiative would unfold and it hasn't unfolded as people expected. To me, again, for me, I go back to this question to, to what the other thing, so one thing that's unusual is that so many people are on the streets and not in shelters. The other thing that is unusual is people keep saying it's an emergency. <laughs> but aside from the moments where you see a homeless person in your neighborhood or occasionally in your face, it doesn't feel like an emergency, meaning this is not a Marshall Plan where we're all being asked to chip in and do our part and participate and talk and share. And I think I hope that this forums like these are part of that process. Um, yeah, Carla, I think also some of, when you really, when I've had conversations um, with people who are really angry, there's usually an underlying assumption about the reason why someone became homeless. Mm -hmm. And it's only that you get to that assumption that that person has that you understand where the anger is coming from. And through our work, we know that 80% of homeless people who've been served by the county have an employment record in the state of California. And that, did you say employment? They are work, yeah, okay. they have a work history okay. in California. So, um, and these are some of the misperceptions about homeless people that they don't work or they've never worked. Right, so, so that, that means any, any record going back to the mid 90s, it shrinks to 40% when you look at people working within four years of their homeless spell and then it shrinks even more to 20% at the time they're homeless. But if you think about that, one in five people who are homeless right now are working. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to absorb the fact that their average earnings are $8,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Homelessness is an outcome of extreme poverty created by a society that has not affordable housing and it's people living with desperate levels of income each of them is diverse. Some might be suffering from mental illness, some might be suffering from substance abuse, some might be experiencing domestic violence. There are many things that, that make your housing unstable, but the thing they have in common is deep, grinding poverty. And I think that if we can absorb that truth, then we get to a place where we're less angry at the individual and maybe projecting that anger out toward a system that creates that reality for so many people. Yeah. And I've, I, the same thing came to mind for me, this idea that, you know, I, I appreciate your point, Randall, about, um, of course we should be frustrated. Like, this is, um, this is just an... Uh, no one should have to live like this. Right, this is an, in, an incredible situation that we've created. Um, and I think about our, my son just started kindergarten, uh, and he's our, our oldest son, so this is our first time navigating the school system, and we've been... Uh, kind of stunned by our experience with this, that uh, there's so much 
individualism in our school cultures, and it, I, I could, this is a whole other <laughs> panel. Um, <laughs> but someone said to my wife and I, stay maladjusted. Like, don't, uh, don't integrate into that new way of being and new way of thinking. Uh, and, the, and the key question that I think I've noticed that our school system is asking, and I think all of our systems, or that, that we as a culture are often asking, the school is asking, how is your son doing in this system versus how is this system doing for your son? Mm -hmm. So every day he gets a behavior slip that's sent home that's, I had a good day or my day could have been better. But he's not answering that question, his teacher is. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was so stunning to us and that's how, that's how our culture is mm -hmm. operating around these systems. We're looking at folks who are out on the streets and we're saying, why is this person not succeeding? Why aren't they getting into housing? Why are they not succeeding in, in getting into housing? Uh, rather than saying, why have we failed this person collectively? Why have our systems and why have we as a community failed this person? Yeah. Well, and I mean, how much, uh, this is a big question, but how much should Angelinos feel like this is our responsibility? We should be doing something. Uh, whether it's me personally doing some kind of volunteer work or whether it's me going to my city official and saying you should do this, that, or the other. I mean, why should we all personally feel responsible? I think, I think many of us benefit from the society that we live in um, to varying degrees. Some of us have challenges. Um, we're not, we don't all live the same lives. But if you're waking up every day and you're housed, you're in a position of privilege. And if you feel frustration and anger about the homeless crisis, then you have to ask yourself, what am I doing to be a part of a solution? Um, not everyone has the capacity to think about that or act on it every day, but there are many simple things, whether it's knowing the name of your service provider and having a personal relationship with someone on their staff, so when you do need to make a call, someone's more likely to pick it up. I and don't know who the service provider is in my neighborhood. I mean, are you talking about like the lead agency yeah. for the area? Mm -hmm. um, I'll bet, uh, maybe all of you do, but I'll bet a lot of us don't. I mean, mm -hmm. how would we find that out? You can look it up online. Under? Um, you can go to LASA's website. Okay. Um, you can also just ask people yeah. in your community. Mm -hmm. um, I, I live in Hollywood, the center, Blessed Sacrament, right by the Y. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are usually different providers or potentially different providers for families and adults. Um, but I, I do think it's worth having some knowledge of who's responsible for serving those people in your community and how that organization works and, and what they might need from the community. When I asked that question for my provider, he said, I need for people to show up once a week and interact with homeless people yep. at our coffee oh, hour. Okay. I just want people to come in and have a conversation. Okay so that they understand what these people's lives are like. It was a very simple request. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure many of these organizations also fundraise if, if you want to be involved at that level. Yeah. I think if you're not comfortable doing that, educating yourself on uh, what state and local bills are going to solve the housing crisis in mm -hmm. California and, and making a call. Those calls really matter. Having worked for elected officials, they track every single email, mm -hmm. every single phone call. It doesn't have to be complicated. You can say something really simple. I want you, my elected representative, to focus on solutions to the housing crisis in California. And that will get logged in an issue file. And they'll know that it matters to someone. And I think, the, to take your first question and your original question, I think it, we should care because it affects all of us, mm -hmm. whether we know it or not. I think just even driving by and seeing someone on the street I think part of um, the frustration that people have or the hidden, I think, fear is that when you see someone on the street, it's actually a reminder to us that that could happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder to us of the social value that if you mess up or if you're perceived as messing up, there is a version of which we throw you away on the street. Mm -hmm. And I think that is true is a trauma we all face daily when we look at that. And that's something that affects all of us, whether we know it or not. Um, so I think we should care because it affects us in so many ways, even just at the basic psychological level. In terms of then what, um, so a couple things on Janie's point. 
if you Google the Coordinated Entry System, CES, <laughs> if you do LASA, we're going to throw acronyms at you, L-A-H-S-A, Coordinated Entry System. That's just a fancy word of saying the structure with which people have assignments of what areas they track. So that's a specific way you can look for your CES lead. Um, to build on Janie's point, in terms of what you can do, there are things you can do individually, but there are things that you can only do as a group. Um, and I think it ladders up, right, on your own, in small groups, and then kind of socially to advocate. In terms of as a group, you can do more. So in terms of in my personal life, I do the in personal interactions on my own, but to do some of these lifts, I work with a group in my church, and we're trying to start something to then step into some of those spaces. So there are, I think the beauty is finding the space in the professional and volunteer relationships where you use each other's strengths. Because I don't have an MSW, and I'm working nine to five, but they don't wanna always respond nights and weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other things that they can do in their time. So I think a few ways that you can wrap around, augmenting engagement is one. So supplementing either in center or on the street, saying, connecting with them to say, who are a few people in my community that you're reaching out to, that you're on contact with, and how can I supplement your outreach to them? One, I think two, even with all the money there is, there's not money for certain specific flexible parts of the pr process. Mm -hmm. So saying we as a group will raise funds for the move-in process, security deposits, or furniture. There are specific points at which those specific expenses help to provide. Um, you mean when a homeless person is moving into an apartment or something? That's like right, that. yeah. that's right. And even on the way, appointments mm -hmm. and housing location search, a lot of times you're, asked, you're given even a voucher, but the right. process by which you search for housing. I don't know how many of you have moved recently. It is not a fun process, and less fun if you don't have an address and a vehicle and other things. So imagine doing that apartment search without any of those things, not even regular internet um, and all those things. So taking someone on a housing location, being part of the housing location search is incredibly vital and being an advocate for them in that search process. And then finally, after they move in, a lot of these services are checking in once a week um, and then as they stabilize once every couple weeks, but being able to be there as an actual neighbor makes a huge difference. So those are four places where professional engagement teams and professional services would love your help. And some of that is easier done, frankly, as a group where you can, it's hard, and the reason why outreach workers work together is that you can burn out on your own. So I think doing that as a group, you can actually do some of these things and you can stay throughout a process. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to go back to the point you made about everyone being affected, by, by, or the ways in which we are affected, and particularly this question of could we all be homeless, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, there go I, that we could all be potentially homeless. And we, we, again, I'm always struck by the parallels to global health work, because there was always in global health, this constant struggle of how should we motivate people? Should we appeal to their moral imagination, right? That they should just care about people because they're people? Or should we appeal to their self-interest because they should be afraid of the idea that anyone can get Ebola, right? <laughs> the, idea, the reality is nobody in this room could probably get Ebola. And even if you got it, it wouldn't be fatal. Um, and some that of the same is logic. So good to know, but <laughs> and, right. So that's the good. I mean, it, right. And in some ways, I would take a different path to this. I would say, feel for those. Who, there are many people who are homeless. There are many people who see homelessness and see themselves because they are indeed in peril, or they could imagine being in peril. And then there are many of us who are lucky enough that we're not liable to face that risk. Now, it doesn't mean there couldn't be a scenario where we do, right? There is some luck, but ultimately, right, homelessness is poverty times bad luck. And so if you're, if you're in a, an economically stable position, uh, many people can't relate to this notion of this could be me. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I think we can go, so right in that case, you want to think about to what extent do you appeal, appeal to rights or caring about your fellow person? To mm -hmm. what extent do you appeal to fear 
Or, and some of the answer is appeal, especially if you're, say, talking to your neighbors, it's appeal to whatever resonates yeah. mm-hmm. with people. So the, the, the burden, so we're just finishing up a report on, the, uh, on homelessness and public health in LA, and you know, we don't find any existing study that suggests any kind of infectious disease crossover from homeless populations to house populations. So I'd say the action is not an infectious disease. If we think about how does homelessness affect mm. public health of the broader population, it would be on stress mm. and mental health, mm-hmm. which is we are all taxed by this on an everyday basis. It mm-hmm. is stressful and it is causing mm. pain. It is causing often, you know, it's in some stressful cases, for all of us. All, yes. For everyone right. in this room, right? That it's stressful. And, and some people have violent reactions mm-hmm. to that. And that needs to be watched. And one of the solutions to feeling that pain and stress is to, right, get out there and do something. So, right, whether you come because you care or you come because of fear or you come because you just need to get this off your chest hmm. and, and do something, get this burden out of your head, I think uh, that's great. And I would just add on Chris's, the, the recommendations he made, I think one question that comes up is about how do you form a group and I know United Way has been involved in setting up everyone in mm-hmm. as a way to organize clubs or neighborhoods. And I'm wondering if, if anyone can sort of elaborate on what, where everyone is at, how to get involved in that. Yeah, thank you for the toss-up. Um, so we do have um, regionalized and localized ways to get involved. Um, so in every neighborhood, we aim to do a storytelling event and a series called Stories from the Frontline. Which yeah. I've been to. Those are really good. Really powerful. Um, those are um, homeless people who used to be homeless mm-hmm. and right. who tell their stories of how they went from homelessness to house, and they're very powerful. That's right. And even people who are housed, I think we aim to, to show to your question how it affects even a broader public, so personal stories from even case managers or civic leaders. Um, and then from there, we have a 101, 201, 301, 401 series in every region. And so that's happening on a weekly basis. So if you go into our events calendar, everyoneinla.org um, slash events, you can see that outline of how you can kind of step into that, sign up for a list where we will ping you on localized or local um, legislative actions that we're taking together. And let me, when, when you were talking about people helping homeless people with like furniture when they move into housing or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Even when homeless people are lucky enough to get housing or n- lucky enough to get a voucher so they can go and find an apartment, it's still hard to get mm-hmm. the landlord to rent. Mm-hmm. It's still hard to come up with the security deposit. And so, I mean, there's some agencies that work on that, but also yeah. people can work on it too. Individuals can help. Mm-hmm. You did something... Um, really interesting. We are, as I mentioned earlier, the city is building bridge shelters all around the city, and these are nicer shelters where people have a bed and a storage space and a bit of a cubicle. They can bring their pet, and they can be there for several months and get case management, the idea being that the next step will be permanent housing. And they're supposed to go up in every council district, and in Koreatown, when Herb Wesson suggested one site, all hell broke loose, and people were outraged and very upset about the site. Mm. And you helped broker an agreement for an alternate site, which I believe is the one that's being used now. I mean, the one that's under construction and stuff. Um, How do you, I mean, what do you say to people who, or what did you say to people who were so angry about bridge housing coming up in Koreatown? Yeah. I think before you say anything, you have to listen. Um, It might be my naive hope, but I do think there's a lot of people who have honest and sincere questions. And I think it's important to acknowledge them. Um, And I think the question is the very first place you start on your journey to the solution. I still remember, and I tell this story all the time, when I took my job and Christine gave me this opportunity to be involved in this, um, one of the first, in the first week, I came by her office and I asked, are we really doing this? We're not really doing this, right? Um, I had the space to ask her honest questions and I grew so much from that. So I think from that, I aim to 
to do that. In that, I think, um, and I think when people have questions, they want to they want to feel like you understand their concerns yeah. well. Yeah. And some of the things that the Korean community was feeling, I think, had been not understood as much when they were relating this to the, um, to the riots and what LAPD had done mm -hmm. there. I think there was, people couldn't conceive of what that meant because it was hard to imagine what that intersection meant to the Korean community. So part of it was listening, saying that I get it, articulating that back to both parties. And then part of what I said in the first meeting was, look, we're here. And this is not about if this is City Hall and this is Koreatown. This is not about us coming to a middle point. I really want to think about how do we not compromise together, but how do we achieve something better together? How do we get to something we all want better together? Um, and so I think it's reminding both sides and almost presuming that what they say they care about is what they care about. Saying, like, I hear you saying you actually do care about homelessness. I'm going to presume that's true and keep speaking into that, and to the degree they're with that and keep going with that, then you stay with that. And for some people who it's about something else, they kind of peel away. But any structure is organized, and there are key people who are influencing broader opinions. So I think it's really about finding and having deep conversations with key people. Um, and then part of the question they had to your fear question before, I think in LA, part of the Part of the challenge is that we have Skid Row. Mm -hmm. And when they think about, when we think about, um, putting myself in the category, um, situations and solutions to homelessness, everyone thinks you're talking about creating Skid Row in their community. Mm -hmm. That is immediately what people are thinking about. That's the touch point. And so you have to explain why Skid Row is what it is and how what's being created is not that. Um, that's a major part of the conversation. That's a, that's a good point. And, and also, all these things go back to, um, I think, misperceptions of who homeless people are. And uh, Janie, you started to talk about that a little bit, like this idea that they don't work, but they actually do work. Talk a little about other misperceptions of homeless people, including the idea that everyone on the street is mentally ill. Um, so that, that's a great question. The homeless population is not some group of people who are all the same, who all arrive there for the same reasons. It's, it's a very diverse group of people who, I think I said this a few moments ago, the one thing they have in common is just sort of deep, grinding poverty. Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the projects that we're most focused on is how to prevent homelessness. So how, how do you reach a person or a family before they're truly in housing crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting things that we've learned through that work is how little it takes to destabilize someone and how quickly it happens. Mm -hmm. So the most extreme example from our recent research is a person who became homeless due to a parking ticket. So they have mm -hmm. so little money, mm -hmm. they got a parking ticket, the fines accrued because they weren't forgiven and they couldn't be paid and it snowballed and resulted in them losing their housing. So if you think about the extreme position that person had to be in for that to trigger, um, and I think that what we're learning is that that's not an uncommon scenario. It's not always a parking ticket. It could be a medical payment. It could be a job loss. It could be the death of a family member who owns the lease um, and the whole family is displaced. And these things happen really quickly um, and one of the things that we see in our data is that people who are homeless for the very first time have significantly lower mental health utilization rates than people who have been chronically homeless and on the street for a very long period of time. We have a lot to learn about this. No one who is sitting up here today is going to say they know all of the connections between mental illness and homelessness. But we are understanding better that it is actually being homeless and on the street that is the risk factor for being mentally ill. Mm -hmm. um, and also the risk factor for substance abuse. You're more likely to be stressed and, and deeply um, anxious um, or have other events that destabilize your mental health if you are unhoused for a long period of time. Um, of course, there are people whose mental illness is the thing that destabilizes their housing. Mm -hmm. I really resist the idea that there's one solution or one problem, that if we just focused on that one thing, this whole thing would go away. 
we have to understand that the system needs to be operating at lots of different levels. We need to be reaching the people who have the income shock and helping them quickly before they're actually in the crisis situation. Did you say income shock? An income shock is a... a yeah, a, with too a, many economists. Yeah, sorry. A, a, a car, your car broke down. You lost oh, your job. okay, okay. Um, you have a parking ticket that you can't pay. You have a family member who was arrested who lost a week's worth of wages. Mm-hmm. Most of us in this room, if we had an experience like that, could, could survive mm-hmm. um, on savings or, or, more importantly, with our family safety net or our community safety mm-hmm. net. We, each of us have these concentric circles that if we really got to our rock bottom, someone in our family or extended family or in our community could step in before we lost our housing. And what we see with homeless individuals is that all of that is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to be really concentrated in areas of LA County um, where deprivation is very high as measured by economists. So it's not just the individual's poverty, it's the entire neighborhood or community's poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but still this um, perception persists that the people we see on the street, or people seem to think that the people we see on the street for the most part mm-hmm. appear mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but many of them do. Is that an inaccurate perception? I think this is, you know, this is something that researchers know, and, and Randall, you should respond to this as well, but, but people who are in crisis and who are mentally ill are more visible. Right. So when you're just thinking about surveying a population you want a representative sample, researchers who work on homelessness, the first thing they're thinking about is, if I just send surveyors out to contact anyone they see, they're going to oversample people who are mentally ill because they're more visible. Mm -hmm. It's the people who are not mentally ill who are on the street who may not even admit to you that they're homeless. Um, And you just don't see them. And we don't see, where are they? I mean, I think they're actually in front of you. Um, we have a lot of people living in cars. Oh, true. Um, yeah. And you're not going to see them during the workday when you're out and about. You might encounter them more if you're having to be walking around in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, this is also a survey issue when we try to... And I, I, I say that because these surveys are how we collect community-level information about the problem. We do it once a year. Um, and this is what makes it so hard to really understand the homeless population because the people you're going to interact with, whether it's you as a regular citizen or a researcher who's in charge of doing the survey, the people you're going to see first are the people who are highly visible and they tend to be people who are very sick and in distress. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's reaching the people you can't see that's harder. But Randall, I'd be curious if you agree with that. I mean, here's how I would put it. Imagine if someone were in your living room watching everything you did every fight you had with your partner or spouse, every time you yelled at your kids, every time you talked to yourself, everything, everything you drank, and they were judging you, right? You would be humiliated no matter what they saw, right? If you, if you did a little bit of socially inappropriate stuff or a lot, you would be humiliated. But also, if a person went through 10 houses like that and then went back to talk to their friends, about the houses they went through. They would talk more about the one where the person was really shouting, or really, right, that that it's just natural to see the bad things, and you can't imagine what it's like to have someone watching you Mm -hmm. um, at at all times of the day, right? Many of the people, I mean, again, many people have jobs, and Mm -hmm. so, again, it's not a huge number, right? There Mm -hmm. is a strong relationship between unemployment and Mm -hmm. homelessness, but certainly the ones who have jobs you don't, are, are, are less likely to be mentally ill, and they're gone during the day when mm-hmm. you're out there. So they're, out, they're there at night. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the reality, I would just say, is we don't have the data, right? So Janie has a, a, a great study, a great report that they just put out, and we're starting to work uh, with the California Policy Lab on some other analyses that use the same... different data sets to get at the same question, which is we have not that much evidence on how homelessness, the ways in which homelessness causes poor health or causes other bad outcomes. And all of the limited evidence we have is on sheltered homeless. Again, that there are the number of studies that you can stack up on how bad being unsheltered homeless is compared to being housed but in poverty or compared to being sheltered are... It would be like a stack, you know, this mm-hmm. thick, and our papers are pretty long. Mm-hmm. So it's just we don't know much, mm-hmm. and we need to, you know, we need to be answering these questions more. And the numbers on the other side are growing. I think that's something important to note is that 
I think we're all saying, do we need more behavioral health supports? Yes, like absolutely. Do we need more? Behavioral health supports. Absolutely, like on the street and in housing, yes, a thousand times over, that needs to be improved so much. And we don't even need, it doesn't even matter if it's 30% or 70%, weird, we need more of it. Um, But on the other end, in in the last few years, we are seeing a lot of people coming out of economic conditions, more and more of that on the street as well. That's growing in terms of first-time homelessness. I think we were surprised in some of our projects how many women and children are actually on the street and families, which are indicators of more economic conditions. Um, and those people left there will become part of the 30 to 70% in three years. So I think that's part of the challenge. And part of what is so counterintuitive about homelessness is that as things get better, sometimes homelessness gets worse, especially the way it's been structured in the economy today. Because I think a lot of the questions I've gotten is, I don't get it. The unemployment is at a record yeah. low. Yeah. LA and California that. are doing better than we've ever done. So clearly something in the, system, the homeless system is broken. But the reality is the structural, the economy is structured in a way right now where when things get better, the bottom bottoms out. And that can be fixed. I think that's the cautionary tale of San Francisco as it took off how it was structured that left this. And I think we're at a crossroads here to figure out what's, what to do about that. Because if you look at the homeless count, it was the lowest actually during the recessions. And it ticks exactly with the economic boom. And LA is getting to a better and better place. So it's an important question for us to consider how this looks in the life of someone in real life um, we're on South Park near Staples Center. We used to be in an ocean of parking lots, our building. Mm-hmm. Cheapest parking in the city, $3 a day. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> empty luxury condos. Um, but the, um, we're waiting for a restaurant on the ground floor. But I was walking after work, and I was talking to a gentleman, and I was asking him, hey, like, how are you? Um, how long have you been out here? How are you doing? And what's your story? And he was sharing how he used to live around the block in a $900 a month apartment. He's an older adult on fixed income, I think social security. I didn't ask whether it's because disability or age, but on fixed SSI. And then he said the building he was in, um, you know, now that other buildings are built around, now it's $1,300. And he can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And he's on the street. And it was literally that increment of the fixed income and Mm -hmm. the neighborhood around us growing and getting better in some sense. um, And and there's the sense that the, I mean, there are all these, uh, we read about this every day, rents are (coughs) insanely high. And um, the economy is doing great, so all those people can afford that, but homeless people can't, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, single-room occupancy hotels get torn down or get repurposed. Um, and wages, unemployment may be down, but wages are not up. So, you know, we're going to... Yeah, I think I, it, Chris was talking about the economy getting better and homelessness getting worse, and I think about... <coughs> on whose back is the economy getting better? Who is is being exploited so that the economy can thrive? Whose labor is being exploited? Whose whose life is being exploited? Uh, So I think that's that's a key piece of it. And I think you're right to to highlight that that's not a coincidental correlation. Uh, And I want to highlight, you know, I think about when we talk about misperceptions, one of the most striking things to me has been looking at data over time and the story that that tells us. So you look at, in 2018, there were 53,000 people who were homeless. 2019, 59,000 people who were homeless. So you would think, okay, 6,000 people became homeless in that time. The reality is 21,000 people moved off the streets and into housing in that year. 21,000 people, which I think early in this work, we thought that would, do, that would cut homelessness in half. You know, that, that we would see this dramatic decrease But the reality is, in that same time, 50,000 people became homeless. And so looking at what are the systemic factors that are are leading people in such mass numbers to become homeless, and the piece I would add to what my colleagues have mentioned about extreme poverty, I think there is a layer that has been less acknowledged around racism and around systemic racism, and how if you look at 
the, co the community of people who are, who are homeless in Los Angeles, 33% of them this year are black Angelinos. Mm -hmm. Population of LA County is 8% black mm -hmm. Angelinos. So there is this disproportionality that does not exist to that degree in poverty. If you just look at poverty, mm -hmm. those demographics are not echoed there. If you look at our criminal justice system, they are. So what are the, what are the systemic factors in our criminal justice system, in our foster care system, that are creating these, these outcomes, particularly for communities of color, that I think, you know, those are some of the questions when we talk about how, is, how are these systems not tending to our people, to our communities, I think that's where I want to encourage us to also look, in addition to affordable housing, in addition to wages not keeping pace, uh, there are these systems that I think we haven't examined as deeply when we look at homelessness because we look at it um, somewhat as a singular issue, but when we step back and we look at, you know, I think about the new Jim Crow and Michelle Alexander's conversation about how racism has continued to reinvent itself, that we're creative as a country. We had slavery, mm. then Jim Crow, then mass incarceration. I would include homelessness mm -hmm. in there mm -hmm. as the latest incarnation of what, what, how ra systemic racism is manifesting itself. Mm. So I think when I think about what everyday people can do, I think about how am I uh, using the power, the power that I have as, as a white woman? How am I raising my three and five-year-olds to be anti-racist little people, um, that that sounds like such an abstract and distant connection, but it, I see them as, as deeply connected. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, I think, even as we explore all the different ways that the people that you see on the street are the result of these complex systems, I still think there are plenty of people in the city and the county who even as they realize there isn't enough housing yet, or even close, mm -hmm. and there isn't enough shelter. I mean, on any given night, there are more, there are 27,000 unsheltered people in the city of LA, roughly, on any given night, and there are about 9,000 shelter beds. So, um, that even though there's, there aren't places for people to go, there's still this feeling of, I just want them to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They should be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where that place is, and I don't think they do either. I think maybe there's a feeling that if they've publicly urinated, they should go to jail, or if they do it over and over again. Or they should be in mental health treatment facilities, but there aren't a lot of residential mental health treatment facilities. So, I mean, how do we... How do we hear people's <laughs> problems, their, yeah. their concerns about yeah. that, about yeah. just, I don't want them here? How do we convince people there's no place for them to go yet? And, um, yeah, I think part of the question to start with um, in understanding is to explain how a lot of them are from where they're out sleeping outside, right? Mm -hmm. That a lot more of, of them are from that area than you might think. I mean, even if I were to ask you all, what percentage, how many of you all are not from LA? So the percentage of us that are not from LA, I'm raising my own hand, is far greater than the percentage of our homeless neighbors who are not from LA. And I think sometimes, to talk about bias and projection, we, we project that I came here for the weather, so they must have as well. Um, and so the percentage is much lower for people. 70% of people who are sleeping outside were originally from LA County when they were um, last housed. And so I think part of it is starting there, um, is to explain how they are, they, this is their community and some place where they are um, choosing to stay um, because it's comfortable and safe for them. And I think it does help to point out how other solutions have not worked, do not work. I think some of the... the you mean jailing people? Yes, yeah. yeah I think there was, there was a really amazing study that the San Francisco um, Chronicle did following people in encampment as they were swept around. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. tracked them, and it showed, literally, it was just like this circle of just following, the, they're just going from here to here to here to here to here. Um, 
and, and, and really explaining that the only way that they will leave the sidewalk would be to make a space for them inside. Um, and, but, so if we could even accept the fact that homeless people are on outside for a while, what about this idea of, a, a lot of the complaints you hear are about trash, and what if, uh, I mean, how can people get their city to come and pick up the trash? Because homeless people don't want trash outside their encampments right. any more than we want trash outside our houses. Or what about if homeless people are making too much noise in an encampment right mm -hmm. by your apartment building, is there someone you can call? Are, are there little things like that that mm. you guys think people could do? I'll answer the trash one really mm -hmm. quickly and turn it back. There is, the city did launch a Care Plus team with mm -hmm. the sanitation department in response actually to providers like PATH trying that out to say if we gave people the tools that they want to clean up, it's not that they don't want a clean space, it's that they don't have the tools and trash service, what would happen? And they found out that things got cleaner and so the city um, has taken that up more formally and is actually doing trash pickups in key areas regularly. Um, I so hope that so. is, yeah. <laughs> so they're starting that. So just to your point, that is something that is starting to happen. So we could keep talking about this all night long, uh, but now we're going to take some questions from the audience. My name is James Sarantinos. Um, this is from Mr. K Town. Um, I do not want. Uh, bridge shelter in my neighbourhood because I think it's going to be like uh, Skid Row. Tell me what I need to tell my neighbours in terms of where they've got it all wrong. So different Skid Row, you have 2,000 beds on one block, a four-corner radius, so you have 2,000 beds there that a lot of them empty out every morning at 6 a.m. These bridge housing facilities, usually 50 to 75 beds, 24 hours where people are staying inside all day with intentional care and supports where their slots are reserved, actually coming from an intentional street outreach effort to house people in that community to come inside. So 24 hours, I don't even know the percentage of that, you know, 10%, is that even smaller than 10%, 1% of the bed, bed volume that we're talking about, Skid Row? Um, the programming and the care dramatically different. So those are a few key differences of, of why it's not Skid Row coming to your community. Thank you. Hi, David Rockello from Rampart Village. How can we get the news media to stop doing those horrible stories where all the homeless people are out there to stab you and scare you? And how can we get the news media to change the stories to more positive reinforcing uh, stories. Well, I actually don't think the LA Times in either its news coverage, and I'm an editorial <laughs> writer, I don't, I don't think the LA Times um, writes sensationalized stories. It's channel 4. Oh, Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> What's a channel? Is that, is that the... I immediately became defensive about myself. I apologize for that. Um, are you talking about their Streets of Shame series? Yeah. Oh, um, my God. Um, I... I don't know. I think um, the more the more that all the newspapers and all the television outlets know about homelessness, the more that they have reporters who do their homework, the more you'll get a complex picture of of homeless people and the problems as well as the successes. Yeah. I also think it's about what are we shining a spotlight on? as a community, what are we sharing with our friends and family? What are we amplifying? I think, Car and I don't just say this because you're here, Carla, you've done such a beautiful job of telling the deeper story and telling the positive story of what's possible and what, what can be in LA and really digging into the complexity that I think a lot of journalism doesn't, doesn't do anymore. Uh, and that's, we all have the opportunity to amplify those stories when we see them. So I think that's a piece of it too. And I guess if I personally, because I don't have a, I'm a cord cutter, I personally worry more <laughs> about social media and next door mm. in particular. Yeah. And I think one thing you can do if you, if you don't like the discourse on your next door site is don't, don't uh, exit, stay in, mm. talk, 
raise awareness. Don't get in fights. Don't troll. Talk. Be there. Get your friends to join. My name is David Lawrence. I am a resident of Pasadena. And my question is, in your professional conversations, where is the support um, and perceived value of universal basic income? Should we be supporting UBI initiatives? Uh, Janie? <laughs> yeah. um, that's a great question. I, I don't think we know a lot about the dynamics of universal basic income. I think there's a couple of experiments going on right now to see, to try to answer the fundamental question, does it disincentivize um, people to gain income or is it actually truly protective in giving people a baseline um, source of income? Um, and so I think there's a lot to learn about that. I think our research on the causes of homelessness suggests actually that a lot could be done with very short-term one-time cash assistance to get people past these crises. And we are seeing people actually resolving their housing crisis with one-time assistance. I think we should see to the, what extent that works and for whom before we commit to something um, as large as a universal basic income. And I would add to that, I think, as we think about income, uh, and I love, I love the idea of, of universal basic income, and I think when I was thinking about the answer to this question of what can everyday Angelinos do, I thought about any of you here who are employers or hiring managers and have the opportunity to set wages in your companies and organizations. Uh, I run a very small nonprofit, and I have a commitment to pay a, not a minimum wage, but a living wage to all of our employees. So I don't hire the next person until we can pay them a wage where they can afford housing in Los Angeles. And if we as employers all committed to that, that would be transformative. I think more, more so or in addition to you know, smaller subsidies for those who, who can't work. Um, but I think that's something UBI can't do, is it in a, in a place like Los Angeles, to be able to afford what it actually costs to live here. Of course, we need to work on affordable housing, but how are we holding ourselves responsible to paying a, a livable wage? What is that wage? <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's, it's debated for us. For us, we set our floor at 60,000, so we won't pay anyone less than... Than 60,000. Some argue that it's more like 70, mm -hmm. um, 75 in LA, which I know is is very tough. Um, but you look at the cost of living, and that's that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> My name is uh, Suzanne. I live here in LA. Um, I've heard that uh, a lot of homeless people um, are. Don't want to go to shelters because oftentimes there is uh, crime or danger or um, the conditions aren't that great. Um, and I've also even heard that some actually prefer living outdoors and living in, you know, I mean, this could be complete misconception, but that the, the con they've been outside for so long that the, you know, indoors just feels confining and it's just a, a big change for especially some that have been out on the street for so long. Mm -hmm. Is that um, a misconception? Is, there a very, is that a very small percentage of homeless or mm -hmm. is that actually a prevalent? In terms of uh, people, I think we should be careful about when someone doesn't want to come inside to a particular kind of shelter that would be different than them not wanting to come inside at all. Yeah. And I think your other really astute point that even people who want to come inside, that can be a hard process for them to come inside. So there's kind of three things there, right? So I think a lot of people have a particular shelter experience that they've had before that they don't want to repeat. So even during El Nino, we actually had a big ramp up in shelter um, capacity because we knew that was coming and during torrential downpours we probably had um, only a quarter of the people accept places to come inside because of again if we had offered a permanent place or another apartment I think we would have had 90 percent plus and you see that in a recent article in the Times about an encampment to home story where everyone in that encampment accepted a chance to live in an apartment and so I think just to be very clear between the difference between the two, we should always be careful about that. Also, shelters are looking in different ways, and so one shelter experience is different than the other. Um, but a change, change is hard for any of us, and I think that is a real process. I did have someone who said, and that's why housing that gives chance, uh, people a chance to do it by their own terms is so important. It's not just to say we're 
we're taking all the bounds off. But we have seen that it's actually more effective to let someone grow into their space and, and dictate that. So we've had, we had someone ask for a balcony once. <laughs> and um, all the misperceptions on why. But it was because they said, I want to come inside and I, and I know it's going to be hard. And so they slept outside in their apartment for a little bit of time, but then that was a process for them. And so that's why I think flexible arrangements that give people a chance to make that journey is important. Um, if any of you remember your New Year's resolution and how many times it took you uh, time to lose five pounds or <laughs> hit that gym, it's, we're talking about a much more fundamental thing. And so, um, yes, I think people struggle with with offers for things also if you the last time any anyone has offered you a free thing um, i don't even accept free vacation offers in my <laughs> mailbox if someone gave you an offer for a free house sometimes it's too hard to believe so distinguishing each of those things i think is important but thank I, you for I, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that practically speaking, when you're talking about having someone move into an emergency shelter, which is by definition temporary, a lot of the times the barriers are around possessions, pets, mm -hmm. yeah. expectations mm -hmm. of behavior that might be uh, too strict, um, and family structure. Mm -hmm. So you could have a social network or a group of people who are operating as your family. It's not recognized as family, like they might right. not be your minor children. And so it becomes hard to stay together or live together, or you might have a partner and not be officially married. Or These, these are very serious concerns for a homeless person. I think the solution is to have really flexible shelter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's not controversial, but this is a solvable problem yeah. if we have I the political agree. will to do it. I agree. And, and also the bridge shelters that are being built, I mean, there's, there are no vacancies. I mean, mm -hmm. right. people get vetted to go in and then they stay there as long as they need and they can bring their pet and mm -hmm. I think they can bring their partner, I'm not sure. But, but um, And there's a connection right. to housing on the other side. And there's That's a connection to housing being on the other side. For and, and there's one more thing I would add to that. I mean, right, we need the beds. And so that's part of it. And then we need to you know, make them the right beds. But the experience that New York had in building shelters and then getting people to move into them was that outreach and a path, uh, right, a path to permanent housing, a path to something better, having people ask you what you need and listen. And have, right, that this is not about units. It's about relationships and outreach. And so the, the very specific point on that is Everyone will turn down shelter at some point in time, mm -hmm. but everyone will accept shelter at certain points in time. And so we can think about what those moments are mm -hmm. when you are too sick or old to be on the streets. So in New York, they did outreach at the hospitals, right? Not just mm -hmm. a little bit of outreach, but like concerted, full-on mm -hmm. outreach, right? You do outreach with formerly homeless clients who are now housed, who can, right, can add salience to this story of why the shelter is not so bad. But really, it's about at the moments when you need shelter, when you are willing to accept shelter, we need to be there with the shelter at that moment. And that requires a level of situational awareness of you know, database uh, acuity and outreach intensity that we're still getting to. And, and it can't be understated that there are literally not enough shelter beds. Right. There are 9,000 in the city, and there are 27,000 people. And, and I've been in a situation where I tried to help a woman who was like, yes, shelter bed, right anything, tonight, and I couldn't find her anything. And, and look, this is LA. When I moved here, you know, my realtor told me, you can have this small house, because you're going to live in your yard. <laughs> so there is some, uh, there is some <laughs> element of that, which there may be a group of people. If we had offered, if we've offered you shelter, if shelter is truly available and you are not a danger to yourself and others, then maybe it's okay for you to be on the, on the streets. And then at that point we could say, this person it potentially poses a threat to themselves mm -hmm. or others, but we're not anywhere near that, right? That we won't get to that point until we have Shelter. And I think one just common life example that you can draw from to do an analogy, um, the Coast Guard Academy, one of the first things they train you is that the person you're trying to save will try to kick your face in. And so to Randall's point, I think um, perceived resistance or a, a, a reaction of fear or concern um, 
you know, we don't look at someone in the ocean and say, oh, they clearly want to stay there. Right. <laughs> I'm going to go back on this helicopter. And, I'm, I'm and to some extent, it goes back to the original question about should you give money or should you give something that you want to give? It's recognize, why am I giving this? Is it because I want to give what I want to give or is it because I want to give what they want? And right, there are moments when money is all you can give. But last week, I w went out and got uh, face masks for fire protection, oh. right? Because at that moment, uh, money is not what people need. Because if they had money, I, again, I, haven't, I didn't necessarily ask whether, you know, if you had money, would you buy a mask? But from a public health standpoint, I would say people need masks. If I give them money, it's not that they won't buy masks because there's nothing wrong with them. It's that they can't buy masks. They need, so at that moment, give someone, offer the, them the thing, right? If they're drowning, offer them a life preserver. Mm -hmm. If they're not drowning and they, and they can use the money, offer them the money. Well, so I think that's actually about all the questions we can take right now, but I can see there are a million questions. So <laughs> fortunately, this is why we have a reception. Um, and before we close this part of our event, I would like to say again thank you to UCLA, who's our co-presenter for tonight, and thank you to all of you for joining us. Please stay and continue the conversation, and let's give another round of applause to our future. Thank you.